Well, hello and welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. This episode sponsored by my amazing patrons on Patreon.com and my awesome subscribers on Spotify. Thank you guys so much from the bottom of my heart. Your support helps me keep the show going and producing episodes every week. In case you missed last week's announcement, the winner of the giveaway to attend the Noble Foundation's Essentials of Regenerative Ranching course was Isaac Brand. Congratulations, Isaac. You're going to Ardmore, October 31st to November 1st, which coincidentally is right at the start of the Regenerate Conference in Santa Fe, which I'll be at. If you're going to be at Regenerate, make sure you come by, find me, say hello, and let me know a little bit about yourself. Speaking of that, I'd like to know a little bit more about everybody, about every one of you that's listening. So I've come up with a little survey, and I put it on redhillsrancher.com slash survey. Shouldn't take but maybe a minute or two of your time. I'd really appreciate it if everybody could go check that out. That's redhillsrancher.com slash survey, and I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes. While you're in the show notes clicking around, please show the other show sponsors and affiliates some love, especially Wild Ass Soap, Grassroots Carbon, and Land Trust. If you need to diversify some income streams on your property, I'd recommend either checking out Land Trust or checking out Grassroots Carbon. Both of them have multiple ways they can help you make a little bit of extra side cash. And if you want some products to help you keep smelling good and feeling fresh, check out my friends at Wild Ass Soap Company. For all my fans on Spotify, don't forget to check out the episode Q&A and polls. I try to have one up for every single episode. Today, I'm joined by another one of my many friends from social media. This time, we go to Northwest Virginia, talk to, uh, talk to a very interesting guy. We get down to the nitty-gritties of sheep and beef and what it's like running his operation there in Northwest Virginia. So stay tuned. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Pretty good. How about yourself? You know, not too bad. Can't really complain about the weather. It's uh, It's been pretty pretty dang nice. Get up, get to wear a hoodie to work, and uh, take it off after about an hour and throw it behind the seat. And You know how it is. In about three or four weeks, you won't be able to find a hoodie in the house because they're all behind the backseat of your truck. Absolutely. And then when, when winter really hits, it's like, well, where are all these clothes? Where's my jacket? You know, where, where's my hat? Where are my gloves? I don't, it's obviously in the truck or the back of the side by side or somewhere laying around in the shop somewhere. I try to be really good about not leaving stuff in the, in the side by side or the, in the pickup. So I, I just got a new rig last week. I got a, uh, I got rid of my John Deere Gator side by side. Nothing but problems. They're a great unit if you're a corn farmer in the I states and never take it off a paved road and never get anywhere where it's dry and dusty. They're a good unit. Out here in the pasture, taking it off road, um, dealing with a lot of the dust and the brush and the grass seeds. It was not a good unit. So uh, have you ever heard of a Mahindra Roxer? I, I have. I have. 
So for those of you listening at home, it's uh it's kind of like a it's like an old CJ2 CJ3 Willys Jeep. That's about the size of it. And they put like a little two and a half liter turbo diesel in it with a five speed transmission, and a two speed transfer case. It's on solid axles, leaf springs, and it does not ride very good <laughs> at all. But the cool thing is, is it'll run like it'll run 55. It'll run 45 really comfortably. And I've just been driving that thing back and forth to work every day. I haven't been even start having to start up to mega cab one ton. It's just been sitting for a week. So that's kind of nice. Save you a lot of fuel too, probably over your pickup. Yeah. It I mean, if it gets 30, which is what everybody says they should get around, you know, 30, maybe a little bit more. Um, yeah, that's that's a lot easier on fuel than that big old one ton. Yeah, I'm 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 currently on a uh 14, 15 year old four wheeler I bought used, wrecked, and just you know, I know I'm gonna trash it. So it's just like I might as well start with something pre-trashed. Let's see, a 15-year-old four-wheeler that still runs, that's probably a Honda. It, it is. It is. <laughs> God, those Honda four-wheelers, man, you cannot kill those things. Yeah, my, my requirement was, you know, four-wheel drive and fuel injected. And anything past that, it's just gravy. We've, I have an old Honda four-wheeler. I think, uh, I think it's probably like a 2005 model, 2005 or 2006 model. And it only has a couple hundred miles on it because dad got that right before I came back from the Navy and like that fall or the next, I can't remember when it was, but it was in 2006. We went and we found that, uh, Kubota, that first Kubota RTV. And then he started driving it and the four wheeler just, it's been sitting ever since, but those we've always had Honda four wheelers. Like we've had Honda four wheelers since since the late 80s i think the first one dad had was like an 86 honda it was a four tracks 250 but it was like the utility version and they didn't even right. make four-wheel drive then and that they could get around um and you know everybody around here likes running like the big 800 900 cc four-wheelers i prefer one smaller actually i prefer like the little four 500 cc rancher because it's smaller it's lighter it actually turns a little bit and if you get it stuck, one guy can go pick that thing up out of the mud and drag it out. You try that with one of those big eight or eight or nine hundred cc can ams or Polaris's. Well, that, and that's the problem we have here. I mean, everywhere it's just we have a lot of swampy ground, so and with a lot of fences and creek bottoms and swampy, and it's like if you want to get down on there, you, you're going to need something fairly light that's going to float well. What? Well, where exactly is here for you? Uh, I'm about an hour northwest of Richmond, uh, Richmond, Virginia. So north of Richmond. So, you know, rich man north of Richmond minus the rich part for me. (laughs) Did that song kind of kind of punch you in the feels a little bit or just make you look toward Richmond a little more? Uh, It it punched me in the feels because I I thought I could I could be a rich man if I wasn't ranching, maybe. Okay, I, I can get behind that. Uh, rich in rich in life for sure with the ranching and farming, but maybe not monetarily rich. That's a that's an important distinction. I'd much rather be rich in life than rich in the bank account. Sure. Did you know I used to live in Virginia? Uh, Norfolk, right? Yeah, yeah. I spent like. I, I, go ahead. Oh, I I lived in Norfolk before I moved back to the. We'll, we'll call it a farm because you know we're here on the East Coast, so it's a 
farm, even though it's just cattle, sheep, and hay. But I was in Norfolk from 2006 to 2018. Okay. Were you stationed there? Uh, I was a contractor in Virginia Beach. Okay. Okay. That's probably... See, I left there that would have been June of 2006 is when I sold my house and I left. Where were you stationed in the Marine Corps? Uh, I was in, I spent a, uh, about a year and a half in 29 Palms. Then I went to Okinawa, Japan for a year. Then I went back to North Carolina to New Bern there on the coast for a couple of years. I got out. Uh, I got a contractor job on base. And then I transitioned that contractor job up to Virginia Beach because my wife was going to go to school in the Hampton Roads area. I mean, the Virginia Beach area, if you're not in the military, it's not too bad. I mean, I, I didn't mind living there. Right. What part of Norfolk did you live in? Uh, gosh, when I lived there, I lived um, I lived kind of like by the west gate of Little Creek. NAB oh, okay. Creek. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I forget the name, but there was there were some shitty apartments there that were kind of cheap. So, you know, that's that's where a lot of sailors ended up. There was plenty of those. Yeah, we ended up over by uh, by Norfolk Naval Base uh, right there, bought a house and, you know, just did life, you know. I, I was stationed on NOB Norfolk, like my whole career, basically. Right. Whether I was on the Enterprise or the Laboon or whether it was when I was on shore duty there but I never really wanted to live that close. So we was always like, well, I lived over by Little Creek. And then uh, for a while we lived kind of like in the Lynn Haven area, lived just West of sure. the mall, you know, just middle suburbia, just normal suburban neighbors. I had a, uh, had one neighbor that he was retired. And every once in a while, if I'd roll in home from work at like nine 30 or 10 o'clock, like you can do in the Navy, um, he'd just walk over and be like, Hey, let's go play some golf. We just throw clubs in the back of his car. We'd like drive three blocks over to the golf course and we go play around. There you go. What did you do in the Marine Corps? Uh, I was an electronics technician, basically to put it in Navy equivalents, but I, I fixed radios. So you're um, equipment. Airedale. No, no, no. On the ground side. Okay. Okay. I'm a little more familiar with like, Marine Corps aviation because I was on the aircraft carrier and there's you know of course they do everything the Navy does like with avionics and stuff I thought that that might be where you're at but doesn't sound like it no no strictly ground side radios and then when I got the contractor job we were doing uh Navy air crew and Marine Corps air crew training ranges and and instrumenting aircraft and ships and doing training exercises with them we just provided the data we didn't do like the white force grading type stuff. There's actually sailors doing that. Okay. Where are you originally from? Uh, where, where I'm at now, Northwest of Richmond. Okay. So just so. landed close to home. All right. So now I got to ask, is that family property or is this like property just near where you grew up and that's where you wanted to be? Fa family property. I'm in the house I grew up in right now. So. Okay. I feel that <laughs> I feel that nothing like nothing like trying to get away from home and coming back to home. Yeah. Well, I went full circle. I was gone, uh, right at like 21 years between the Marine Corps and contractor work before coming back. Okay. 
Well, what made you want to come back? Um, I used to come back, you know, once or twice a year and, and work cattle, you know, we'll, we'll call it branding, even though we don't brand, but, you know, give shots, preg check type stuff. And, uh, I, I was up here one year helping. And, you know, after we were done, I, I talked with my brother and it was like, you know, dad's really starting to slow down, you know, on, on what he can do and, and what he wants to do and stuff. And I just, I, I talked with my dad about it and it's like, Hey, you know, uh, what do you want to do? You know, where do you see yourself going? These weren't my words, but you know, you don't have a conversation with your father with those words, probably. I I don't, but uh, you know, do you want to retire? Do you, do you want to sell the property? Do you, you know, it's like, I don't have any, I, I'm not going to be hurt if you want to sell out because, you know, you know, as a rancher or a farmer, you know, in a lot of cases, you're, you're land rich, cash poor. So, yes, you know, without, you know, maybe, maybe he's looking at the land as his retirement fund or, or whatever the case may be. So it was just, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep doing this? And he was like, yes. And, and it's basically like, so I just asked him, you know, do you need help? Do you want me to move back? Um, and he, he said, yes. And I, and I had already talked this over with my wife and, and what we wanted to do and, and where we were going to be. And so it just turned into to start with, it just turned into like, I came up and I was, I was labor for him basically. And, um, we've kind of not kind of, we have transitioned to, I'm basically leasing the operation from him. Uh, and I've gone out and gotten my own rental land in addition to like the family land. And, you know, I own all the cows and all the sheep and, you know, I'm leasing the land, the equipment. And, uh, he's, he's actually kind of working for me now, I guess, which has been a pretty crazy change that, uh, that has happened just in the last, uh, I guess we started in April of this year. Okay. That was a few years ago when dad and I kind of got to that point where you know, it was my name on everything. And I was around the show and he was like, what do you need me to do? What do you need me to do today? What do you need me to do today? Just try not to break anything today. That's what I need you to do. Don't. Break <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've experienced some of that. Like, how many things can we run into this week? Yeah. Oh man, I'll I'll tell this story because it's been long enough. I could kind of laugh at it. This was uh, about three years ago, and I just I just done a water system expansion. There's a water system I call Bob that waters, and I like. 17 1800 acres over two and a half miles of pipe it's got six tanks on it including two big storage tanks well it had one and just had one eight thousand gallon storage tank and i had another one on the south end of the ranch that i wasn't using okay this is a good opportunity i got some oil field buddies that are you know kind of struggling for some work call them up be like hey go here grab this tank set it here and hook it up we'll do the rest so they moved this tank and it was a 10,000 gallon tank. So I've got about 18,000 gallons of water I can store on top of this hill now, which is great until you have a leak and you dump all of that on the ground. And then it takes several, it takes a long time to fill that sucker back up at 12 gallon a minute. Plus the cow on it. So I had this tank set and, you know, we had just enough dirt around it to keep it from rolling away. And my dad was like, Hey, I ain't got anything else to do. What if I take skids through over there and pile up a bunch of dirt around that tank? I said, fine. Don't go near the fiberglass tank. Just be careful. 
we don't need any more dirt around it. Stay away from the fiberglass tank. You can do whatever you want around the steel tank. Just stay away from the fiberglass tank. An hour later, he calls me. I screwed up. Oh, God, what'd you do? <laughs> says, well, I kind of maybe hit the, the fiberglass tank just a little bit with the skid steer. Okay. What is a little, what does hit it a little bit look like? Well, there, there's a gash in it. It's leaking, but it's not too bad. You'd probably fix it pretty easy. Okay. So I went over there and took a look, and there's like a like a two two and a half foot mark on the side of this tank, and I could tell where you kind of scrape the bucket down it, and there's a gash in it, and this water's pouring out. It's like, oh god, now what? So we 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 got the machine back to the house, and I tr I don't remember screaming and yelling and being really upset, but it was kind of like. Hey, that was really, that was dumb. Like you really got to be careful because now I've got to drain that. Now I've got to drain that and I've got to go inside the tank and put a fiberglass patch on it, which was another, like that was, that was all kinds of fun in itself. I mean, you're down in a 10 foot tank working at eye level, trying to put a pat, a fiberglass patch on the side of this tank. I want to do that again. Like, let's go do that every day. That was so much fun. <laughs> well, well, we have a mutual friend. I, I won't mention his name who, uh, who told me a story about uh, ranching with his father and, you know, heated tempers and saying something and, and uh, that, that he went on to regret. And I, you know, of course I love my dad, but it's just like, I sometimes I have a temper and maybe he has a temper too. And, you know, it's just like, I, I try to make sure I keep myself on an even keel and, and show that grace because I, I think about what this person told me and I'm just like, yeah, I don't want to be down in that spot either. So. When, when something like that happens, like, you know, he's like cracking that fiery last tank. I've gotten to the place where it's difficult for me to be mad at him and be upset with him. Because he's doing the best he can. Right. I mean, he's he'll be 80 years old in 60 days. I mean, he, he's earned it. He's earned the right to sure. do whatever he wants. He's earned the right to to just, if all he wants to do every day is just get up and cruise around the gator with his dog and look at grass and look at the cows. That's fine. I'm not going to tell him no. It's, And I'm aware that I don't know how to say this. Like, it's not that every day might be his last, but you know, we're on short time. I mean, he's not going to be around forever and sure I really want to enjoy the time that I have left and, and the work and working with him. You know, I, I've really enjoyed working with him and working around in the last several years. So makes it enjoyable that he's kind of turned things over and letting me run the show and looking at me for guidance still appreciate his counsel i mean he's not afraid to tell me when i'm screwing up <laughs> he just doesn't do it in public anymore um but yeah you know i just i enjoy i enjoy having him around i enjoy having you know all of his knowledge around and i think he enjoys watching me and watching what i've done with the place that's good i mean that's a, a great spot to be in I'm, yeah. I'm i'm working my way there it takes a while like you don't get there overnight <laughs> I'm sure. So, uh, I know you said it, but I missed it. What year did you say you, uh, you dropped out of your consulting to come back and run the farm? Uh, 2018. I came back in May of 2018. 
Okay. So what did things look like in, in like 2016, 2017 before you came back? What did it look like when dad was still running the show? Um, I mean, it was, it was cow calf, uh, cut a lot of hay, feed a lot of hay, uh, and, you know, kind of set stock, we'll call it, you know, not, you know, kind of just running all the cows in one pasture. I mean, maybe move them once or twice a year, but that, that'd be about it. So pretty traditional, like, we'll call it low labor input cow calf here on the East coast. Okay. He was, he was in continuous calving. Um, you know, the bulls were out all the time and just, yeah, low, low labor input. Low labor, low management. Correct. Okay. So you came back and you saw that. So what did, what did it look like for the first couple of years? Uh, the first couple of years was just, you know, I was, and I, I had grown up doing that. You know, I grew up here working with him as a kid and, and that's all I knew. And then it was like, well, I wanted to, uh, I, I would like to make more money doing this is, you know, kind of what it started as. And we, we will say that I was, uh, was kind of like a lease cow arrangement. I was, I was being paid in, in weaned heifers and, uh, which was fine. And, uh, we were, I was saving most of those to be replacement heifers. So the cow herd was kind of turning over at that point. And it was just like, you know, this, this management style is not in, you know, 2020, we'll say it is not a management style that's going to be profitable. Um, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people are continuous calving anymore and, you know, feeding six months of hay and, and things like that, you know, it, you commodity cattle. how many of my neighbors are feeding six months of hay. <laughs> sure. Sure. You know, commodity cattle prices are, are what they are, you know, so you need, you know, if you're going to, the only thing you can do is reduce your input cost. Really. You're not going to, you know, unless you're willing to do direct to consumer or other things that are going to make you more, the cattle more valuable, you know, to increase your profitability, you really need to reduce your input cost. Okay. So how did you start pulling those levers of reducing your input costs? Um, I did some experimentation with some like rotational overgrazing, um, which, you know, wasn't super successful. Um, what really turned me to like, you know, trying to improve the land and grow more grass and feed less hay was I actually had a neighbor who was, uh, he, he had a very small operation um, and he was selling it and he, he had already sold his cows and he just wanted somebody to come in and cut hay. So it would, it would look pretty, you know, for the, whoever was going to buy it type thing. And uh, we went in and cut hay on it. And it was like, this made a lot of hay. You know, we're not making this much hay on land that we uh, are fertilizing and, and amending and cutting hay on. And it was just kind of like, and I knew he had rotated his cattle. He had uh, British whites and he had been a big, you know, rotational grazer, we'll say regenerative. And it was like, wow, this is like really good ground. Um, it's growing a lot of grass and it's just like, it, it just kind of blew my mind on it, honestly, you know, cause he's five miles down the road. So, you know, he's in the exact same context we're in. And it was just like, 
you know, and I, obviously I knew about rotational grazing and, and everything uh, previous to that, but it was like, I mean, you really can make a difference. You know, you really can grow more grass. If, if you manage better, you, you really can grow more grass. And it's, you know, that's kind of the one free resource you have. So, you know, and I, and I know you know that, and it's just like, it, like I said, my mind was blown and I was just like, I, I have to do better here. Okay. So you saw that and that was what, 1920? Uh, I guess it was 2020 probably. Okay. Okay. So I, I, I guess tell me a little bit more, tell me a little bit more about that or keep going and, and how did, how did what you saw on that other property affect what you were doing on yours? It just got me to the spot uh, in my mind where I need, I knew that like, you know, reading stuff or hearing other people say, did you just need to see somebody down the road doing it? Yeah. To, to yeah prove in your mind that it worked. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and then it was, it was, you know, figuring out how I was going to implement that here. You know, how, you know, how would I fence? How would I water? You know, what, what would my paddocks look like? You know, and I, I was transitioning to a 60 day calving season as well. And it's just like, you know, I cut six months of hay, which is a completely separate topic, but, um, well, we'll you know, so it's like that. I'm sure we will. Um, <laughs> so it's like finding the time, finding the money, finding the time to to implement the stuff um, that that I wanted, that I thought I needed, and and I by no means have the number of of paddocks I want, and I'm I'm not I don't have the water infrastructure I want. I don't have the. Uh, it, it's okay. I I need more paddocks and I need more water infrastructure <laughs> too. I think that. I I know. Uh, you told me on a TikTok comment that you. You can only start, you know, you have to start from where you're at. Yeah. So, so I, I had three big pastures and I just had to start there. And and that's fair. I mean, you've only been ahead of a couple of years, honestly. Right. And, you know, it, it's a process. So what I'm curious, cause this actually, I had a phone call about this yesterday. How did you come up with your fencing plan? Like, software did you use or did you just print out a map and start drawing out with crayon because you know i know you're a marine yeah it would have been crayons um i actually so i, I have very limited water we'll say i have water in one spot on the whole place it's not true but the multiple places are all around like one central barnyard um right. so and then I have like some creek bottoms and stuff that cut across the property, obviously existing fences. And I was just like, I was at a complete loss. And I actually went down to like my local extension agent and I was like, Hey, I need some help with this. Like, do you guys have some resources? Uh, Virginia is really pushing this uh, grace 300 program, which is grace 300 days a year, feed hay 65 days. Okay. So I, I was like, oh, they have some resources. She'll give me some help or something. And she basically like printed out a map of the place and was like, she, she was helpful. Um, but she didn't, she basically, I drew a wagon wheel and I was like, why didn't I just wagon wheel this out to start with? Um, <laughs> and that was basically the end of the meeting. And I came home and built like 
built wagon wagon wheel fences, you, you know, pie slices around the central water. Um, and, and I started and it was all, we'll call them semi-permanent fences because I, I couldn't fully commit. Uh, it was still my dad's operation at that point as well. So it was kind of like I have to meet his needs, um, which is to cut hay. So I, I was like, I can't fence out all these hay fields necessarily uh, with permanent fencing because it'll possibly run something into them. So it was just like, I'll put semi-permanent fences or temporary fences across this part and I'll be able to pull stuff up and we'll be able to cut hay. And that only lasted one year. Um, so that was pretty, I was pretty happy with doing that. Uh, the, the semi-permanent fences are still there, but the, the cutting the hay here at the home place only lasted one year. Okay. We're going to get, let's just get into it. Like, okay. All right. So why'd you stop cutting hay on the home place? Uh, because I would rather have the cows graze it off. Uh, it's cheaper for me to have the cow. It doesn't burn any diesel fuel to, to let a cow go out and eat grass that's still growing. I mean, and that's putting it really, really simply. So are you still making roughly the same amount of hay, just taking it from a, a leased property or are you buying it in or what, what, uh, have you got, I, down to, I, have you got down to where you can only feed hay for 65 days in Virginia? I, I have not. I, uh, when I got here, we were feeding hay, uh, legitimately one of the first years I was here or back here, we fed 180 days of hay. Um, yeah, I see your eyes going wide at that. Um, <laughs> It's, it's a lot of truck starts. It's a lot of truck time. It is. And so uh, last year, I think I fed 100 days of hay and I had doubled the herd size in those five years. So uh, 65 days seems like a, a stretch goal. I'm not sure that I will make it. I, this year I'm planning on uh, feeding 90 days of hay. But I've also, my herd size is a little smaller, but I've added a bunch more sheep. So you know, I, I don't remember the winters in Norfolk and Virginia beach being like exceptionally terrible. I don't remember getting a lot of snow, getting a lot of ice granted that's on the coast right next to water. So I'm sure where you're at is, is going to be different, but it, how, how not that much different, uh, not that bad. I mean, it'll probably. We'll have snow on the ground maybe two weeks at the most. Um, it's just it's wet and muddy because we don't also don't freeze it up, so it'll just be wet and muddy all winter. Well, I mean, wet and muddy is a different sort of challenge than dry and dusty. Than you know, six feet of snow like some of the boys up there in North Dakota have to deal with. Sure, you know here our winters it could either be cool or muddy or it's going to be hot, dry, and dusty. And I have a feeling that it's going to be hot, dry, and dusty this year, but it'll be fine. I mean, that you know, if you believe everything Farmer's Almanac says, we're supposed to get a lot of snow this winter here. You ready for that? Uh, I, I am. I'll just sell less hay and feed it to cows and make less money. But in this cattle market, I mean, you can't go wrong, right? Oh, I'm sure that I could probably find a way to lose money in the cattle market right now, but man, it's, it's so good. So I want to, I want to talk about this today. 
because this episode comes out um for those of you in podcast land we're recording this last tuesday so yesterday being monday a week before the episode comes out now that everybody's thoroughly confused uh, wally olson called me and it's always a good it's always an interesting day when wally olson calls and that's one of those phone calls that i really try not to bitch button because you know when he calls me he generally wants he either wants to tell me something or he wants to know something and it's important so I answered the phone. He asked me one question and I kind of had about a 90 second spiel. And I can't even remember what it, what the question was. And he said, well, that answered everything I want to know. What's on your mind, young man. <laughs> I said, what's the cattle market doing? So we discussed the cattle market for a little bit. And Wally, Wally is, is very bullish about the cattle market right now. He's thinking that, calves you know we just broke three dollars on calves he's thinking that calves will go four bucks before this thing is wow he's also saying forty five hundred to five thousand dollar pairs like you know good black cows which you know makes mine worth i don't know about fifteen hundred bucks so we we talked a little bit about market forces okay about we, we all know that this is a hell of a rally right now. Like if you take the High Plains Journal, which you probably don't because you're not in the Plains, but I mean, the, the graphic of cattle prices, it's just, it's a skateboard ramp and it's going up and it's, it's like a rocket ship ride to the moon. And I think everybody, a question that's on a lot of folks' minds is when's the ride going to end? When does the music stop? And Wally, Wally seemed to think that it, there's going to be a lot of strength in the market for quite a while. Because the market's fueled by demand and our our supply, we've drawn down supply over the last couple of years of drought in the Plains states. You know, there's several million head of cattle that are missing out of inventory. Last couple of years, we had a lot of early light placements. So the feedlots could maintain production. But now, you know, still a lot of the country's dry. Still a lot of cows going to town. As long as... Okay, and what I'm saying is, I guess where I'm roundabout way of just me rambling here. Prices are going to continue to stay strong and climb if we get widespread rain in the in the plains and the wheat pasture comes up, things are going to go crazy. If corn price comes down a little bit and corn harvest is a little bit stronger than predicted, that's that's going to cut that that'll help fuel another rally so we talked about a lot of things you know price signals and you know commodity prices and what could you know what could signal that we're starting to see the top of the cow market and wally didn't seem to think that that there was a there was a signal that he could foresee that would show the top if that makes sense like he's looking for it to go up for quite a while yeah i mean i you know, I, I don't have Wally Olson's knowledge on the cattle market. Um, I don't, most people probably don't. But I'm not going to pretend to either. <laughs> but, you know, looking at just the historical trends, which don't accurately reflect what maybe what the future is, but it, it is a historical trend. I mean, what, two or three years of, of strong prices before the market usually goes back down. So, and we could be looking at another, you know, a year to 18 months of run up. Right. And right. honestly, if it's the longer it stays strong, 
$4 for calves might not even be the top. I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. You know, my only concern is um, just with the overall inflation and, you know, your gross, consumer grocery dollar going less and less, will beef demand stay strong? Oh, and that's the real question. Like, will demand stay strong? And I think, you know, the American consumer is going to want beef. It's just how beef is priced relative to chicken and pork, I think is, I think is what's kind of important. Now, you know, chicken and pork aren't going to have the same dynamic pricing influences that cattle do because, you know, it's so vertically consolidated and, and integrated. There's, I, that I, that probably also means that there's more room for them to screw with the prices on pork and chicken to, to alter beef demand, right? Because, right. you know, it, You've got your mom, you know, your typical suburban mom with 2.785 kids and, you know, a SNAP benefit book going to Walmart to buy groceries. If beef today is $9 a pound ground at Walmart and chicken breasts are six, she's probably going to take some chicken home. You know, Absolutely. If, if pork starts to get cheap, she's going to start choosing pork a little bit more over beef. And, you know, that's something we can't control. That's something we don't have any control over. We just kind of have to, you know, as producers ourselves, we kind of have to look at what that market signal is doing and kind of respond appropriately. It, there's also the argument that, you know, they could ramp up pork and chicken production a lot faster than we could ramp up beef production. I mean, sure. Sure. The turn is so much quicker, you know, from, from birth to, to process, to harvest on a, you know, a, a chicken's what, eight weeks. Yeah, eight if you're on a corner's cross or, you know, the, right. a white one on a grower rash. And if you're yelling something like a Freedom Ranger or Red, you know, your birds are going to be a little smaller. And you're going to look more like, you know, 10, 11, 12 weeks, which I think that's a good trade off sometimes. Sometimes it's not. It depends on where you're at. No, I Ab absolutely. But I mean, it's the Cornish cross that's that's in Walmart that that consumer's looking at. I'd rather eat one of our Red Ranger yard birds, or I mean, they're not even Red Rangers. They're just like chickens. <laughs> <laughs> like some of these chickens are so messed up. We don't even know. Like, what's that thing? Well, it's a red Easter egger. Like that doesn't even make any sense, but we have them. So it, we've raised, not we, Tanya has actually hatched some of her own fertilized eggs from our flock and we've done that twice so it's like we've got all kinds of weird chicken genetics but they're successful here they just don't grow very fast we got some pretty small we got some fairly small hens that lay kind of medium-sized eggs they might make a couple of uh um, i don't know whatever but yeah they can always they can always mess with the price and absolutely that's what concerns me is, I mean, they're going to have to balance their price out a little bit to moderate beef demand, I think. But the higher, the, the higher, higher prices at the supermarket work for everybody but the consumer. Yes. Yes. So how do you, we're talking about marketing. How do you market your beef? Um, I take them up to a state graded sale 
where you know so basically commodity uh beef and it's just you know the state grader grades them you know large medium ones or twos steers heifers and and they go on to be sold that way okay and coming in commingled lots interesting interesting i never never visited a sale barn in virginia so they're I'm just sitting here thinking how that works and trying to noodle that out. So it sounds like, you know, the sale bar is trying to make it easier for the buyer. And it sounds like they're right. trying to make it easier for buyers to put together packages, lot load packages to send here to background yards or to finish yards. And mo most of the cattle here actually go to Pennsylvania to be finished. But your point still holds. I mean, yeah. That, that that's what they do. I mean, they go move, they go find cattle that are cheap in one part of the world and they move them to where feed is cheap at somewhere else. And then they move them to where that animal is undervalued and feed is cheap. And they just keep rinse and repeating kind of like, kind of like some cow traders do. And there's nothing wrong with trading cows. Um, so when did you bring sheep on board and why? Um, that, that's an interesting story. Uh, I guess it was spring of 2022. Uh, my wife was just like, Hey, I want some sheep. And I was like, yeah, sheep. Well, fine. Let's, let's get some sheep. We got like 15 views and it was, you know, kind of just my wife's like, we won't call them pets because they weren't pets, but you know, ho hobby sheep. And uh, we went to everyone's favorite uh, ranching school in Billings. Yep. Ranching for profit. The school that and, shall not be named. Correct. And, <laughs> you know, we came back, we did the numbers and we, we looked at where we were at and what we were doing. And we went to the school in January of 2023 and it was, it was like, well, let's just get 300 use to really kind of diversify, you know, our income and just we were already talking about cutting the cattle herd numbers down to, to feed less hay and graze more and, you know, look at some of the benefits that sheep would bring and, you know, multi-species grazing and diversified income streams. And it was, well, let's just get 300 sheep. We're not at 300 uh, because we actually had never even been through a lambing. Uh, we went out and bought, I think we lambed uh, about 130 ewes over and we, we bought, we had ewes that we had exposed and then we bought a couple of different groups. So we lamb for like three months, which was awful. But uh, somebody told me lambing takes a lot more finesse than calving. And I, I'm a believer in that statement after one lambing, but uh, they're going good. They're going good, but that's, that's kind of why we got sheep. Okay. I want to ask what the how much better the margin is on sheep there, but I don't want to pry too deeply. Well, I actually haven't uh, really sold that many lambs yet, okay. uh, so I don't know. Um, right now, I would say from the research I I did, the lamb market kind of runs opposite of the calf market. So if calves are high, lambs are low, and when calves are low, lambs are high. Kind of the cycle's kind of inverse. So right now, it's, lambs aren't that great price-wise. But, I, you know, looking at the average margin, it looked better. I mean, it, you can lamb. Wean lamb percentage can be around 150% of your 
ewes. You know, so if you have 100 ewes, you can get 150 lambs because a lot of them will twin lamb. Of course, not all lambs make it a lot fra- more fragile than calves. So, yeah, for sure. But, uh, you know, overall, it it looks like it, it'll have a good, you know, gross margin per unit. But I guess time will tell where we're at. What's your plan to market your lambs? I would, uh, I don't I just, like, did I just ask the question? You're not ready to answer yet. No, I'm, I'm ready to answer it. Um, I would like to sell, uh, the, the ewe lambs to other producers that, that would like sheep. And I would, so private treaty, ewe lambs, um, the, the weathers, I, I don't like this word, but this is the word used in the sheep community. I would like to sell them into the ethnic market. Um, you know, which is folks that eat, eat lamb that would like to take the lambs home and home slaughter them, I mean, uh, it, home processes them. It, it's big and, in, in Muslims and Africans sure. uh, and uh, Mexicans and Latino community. I mean, it's, it's huge. And I Correct. think those ethnic markets or those, those ethnic outlets I think those are huge for people doing not necessarily commodity beef, but anybody doing sheep, goats, chicken, like that's, that is definitely a market that you should look at because a lot of those folks don't like the standard American diet. They don't like heavily processed food and they want to eat it raw or they've got not raw, but in it, and they want it clean. Um, and I'm thinking more of Muslims, right? Law, you know, They've got, they've got several religious events that kind of rotate around the year. And I guess it's kind of hard to, to plan a sheep or goat production cycle around their holidays because they don't exactly match up and they're not the same time every year on the calendar. Uh, but I've had several people tell me that, you know, they'll find a group, like there's a group of Somalians that went to a friend's place and bought like 20 goats on the hoof. And when they left, they had 20 goats in coolers in the back of their car. Like, right. and, and I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, we, we have sold uh, our next door neighbor is a, is a vineyard here. And we have sold a, some folks were interested in a cow on the hoof. And it's like, we're, we're going to process it ourselves here. We would like to process it ourselves here. And it's like, absolutely. Well, I can dig a hole, you know, you can, do what you, you can take the parts you want, the parts you don't want, you can throw in the hole and we, we will all be happy. Is there a mobile processor there in Virginia? What's processing like? If you wanted to get one uh, part, how bad, how hard is it to get done? We're about two years. You'd have to schedule about two years in advance. Um, so I, I have a, I, I have a processor that they say they're the uh, have the largest processing capacity in Virginia, and they can squeeze you in. They are cattle only. Um, if you want one of the smaller processors, although still USDA and closer to me, it, they're like two years in advance. It, it's crazy. It's, the capacity still hasn't caught up with the demand. Wow. Are there any new plants around you being built that you know of? Uh, not that I know of that there's been 
talks and surveys and and stuff where they would like to get plants closer here in the Richmond area built, but they're just it's not happening or the timeline's so long. Any any idea why? Just the money's not there. Can't find a site. Government not willing to let let them build one. I I don't know what the holdup is. I don't know the people personally that are trying to to do it. Okay. I mean, it's, it's a lot of risk and I'm a little risk adverse myself. It's just, there's a lot of them that started getting built over the last three years. And I just, I hope we can hang on to half of them really. Right. And, and that sounds bad to say it does, but Honestly, I, I hope we can hang on to half the new packing plants that have been built or that have been planned to build or going to be opening within the next couple of years. Now, I'm I'm not necessarily talking about like the big ones that they want to build in western Nebraska and in South Dakota. I think those are kind of doomed to failure um, for reasons we can get into. But a small scale plant for community, you know, 50, 100, 200 a month. I think that's pretty reasonable. And I think we need more of them. We don't need more 2000 head of day plants, especially not built with federal assistance money, because what's going to happen? What's going to happen to those 2003, 5,000 head of day plants that these cattlemen groups are trying to build? Yeah. The big, the big processors are going to come in and buy them out and close them down. I, there will be something, they will engineer some sort of market condition to squeeze those plants out of business, squeeze them down, where they're not profitable, and then Tyson Cargill, JBS, can swoop in and rescue them for ten and buy that plant for ten cents on the taxpayer dollar. Yes, and I mean, are are uh, rancher cattlemen groups building their own plants? There was a group um, in in like Nebraska Panhandle, Southwest Nebraska. That was, they wanted, they've been trying to build like a 5,000 head a day plan. We're going to compete. We're going to compete with the big guys. Like, great. So Calicrate always says, if you want to build a beef, beef plant, start with your customer. Who are you selling to? And so at, at 50 a week, okay, that. That's not a lot of beef, you know, compared to what Tyson does at even one of their plants out in Western Kansas. Like I can, I can drive out to the Holcomb plant in like less than three hours and they run 6,000 a day out there five days a week. Like right. big plant, a plant that does 2000 head a day. That's a lot of product, several tractor trailer loads. Where's what market's going to absorb that? Are you going to sell that to Walmart? Okay, let's talk about what it's like to deal with Walmart. They might take your original deal, and then a couple of years later, when you're doing you know, 30 40% of your business to Walmart, you put them in a position to dictate your, the price that they're going to pay you. And you don't think that Tyson, JBS, and Cargill have arrangements? Like, I'm sure they have long-term arrangements with Walmart. Like, hey, you buy this at this product, you buy this at this price, and we'll give it to you all you want. They can, those big companies, the big packers are not afraid to take a loss in one protein segment to kill a competitor. They've done it over and over and over again since the 80s, and they're going to keep doing it. 
So when I say that these farmer built plants that are being built with money that Donald Trump authorized, that Joe Biden authorized, they're just building them for the big four. Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope I would hope that doesn't come to fruition, but I, I understand that it probably will. And I don't, you know, so how do you unwind that situation? Okay, the government has the power to fix that situation. The government has the power to break up monopoly. They can tell, they can tell JBS, hey, you guys have like felony indictments. You've been caught bribing people in other countries. We're not going to do business with you because it's illegal for us to do business with you. Right? Right. Um, we can't say that because they're too big to fail. You know, we can't go out. Well, go ahead. And do we want more government regulation, more government stepping in to break these up? I mean, you know, that's its own slippery slope. And, and that's kind of where I was going. A, they've already done it once. They did it a hundred years ago when five of them, when five meat packers controlled 60% of the market, that was too much concentration. We got the Packers and Stockyards Act, broke up the Packers. Everybody's happy. Here we are a hundred years later. We've got four of them controlling over 80% of the market. And according to the same laws that were on the books a hundred years ago that we passed to prevent this from happening again, there's nothing on the books to, to do it, to, to, to prevent it, to break them up, to, you know, do something about their monopoly power. Yeah, I. Th that's not where we are, though. I mean, it's it's kind of clear that it's an oligarchy, and I'm not. I don't think government's going to solve the problem. Like it's up to us to take care of ourselves and solve the problem. Sure, and, and our, our cattlemen's lo lobbying group is is right there with the Packers. So, <sighs> are you talking about NCBA? I am. I wish that we could get people to understand that NCBA does not represent the cow calf producer, doesn't represent the cattleman. Sure. Like, I, I agree. NCBA represents feedlots, backgrounders, and packers. And okay, let's take this from a 30,000 foot view. The packers or the, the feeders and the backgrounders, do they represent the vast majority of cattle? I'm going to say yes. But there's, there's this whole segment of us cattle producers that doesn't have a voice. The independent cattle producers that are trying to direct market, we're trying to find, you know, our low input niches in a commodity system like you are, or like me, trying to play a different game entirely. We are not supported. We do not have a voice. I mean, RCAF is, okay, let me take that back. I think RCAF is a great voice for the independent producer. NCBA, U.S. Cattlemen's just, maybe I'll take U.S. Cattlemen's out of there, but NCBA just doesn't seem to, they don't, they don't care about us. They don't care about guys like you and me. Until you have a 10,000 head feedlot, they don't even want to listen to you. Well, they're, they're happy to take your beef checkoff dollar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you Even if you sell private treaty, you're supposed to submit your checkoff dollars. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know. I know I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do, too. 
every single time. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, come audit me. I dare you. We actually have a state, we have a state checkoff fee here as well. So I'm, I think it's 50 cents a head, but that goes into the Virginia Cattlemen's program. So there's probably some kind of a state checkoff fee through Kansas Livestock Association, which is just basically kind of a mouthpiece for NCBA. Uh, I, I have no particular love for uh, KLA. Now, Kansas Cattlemen's Association is more aligned with RCAF. So I've actually sent KCA money before, but Kansas Livestock Association, no, sir. No, sir. So you're not a you're not a member, you know. If you're not a member, you you just don't have a voice. That's what they'll always tell you. So, okay, well, let's take that statement. So, NCBA says they have about fifteen thousand members. Okay, that's great. RCAF has about five thousand. Now, the difference between the two is there's a lot of NCBA members that don't even know they're members. Just because they're a cattleman that fed cattle at an NCBA-affiliated yard, as soon as those cattle get checked in to that pen under your name, that yard signs your ass up for NCBA membership. And you're added another one to their roles, and you didn't even know. You didn't even know. And so you don't even get a vote. Somebody else is voting your proxy as one of those 50,000 right. NCBA members. That's awesome. I send my money every year to RCAF. It's not much, but it helps. I know it helps them. And i that's a voluntary choice. Like I willfully send that check to RCAF every year because that's what I want to support. Do not want to support NCBA, even if it is through some backdoor thing like, oh, I just fed cattle at a yard, so they're going to make money off of me no matter what. I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that's, that's uncool. That's just an uncool thing to do. Well, I mean, they are the the big organization and, and they definitely, you know, their weight gets thrown around, um, I think, in a lot of ways. They're more, I mean, I was going to say they're more of a lobbying organization than anything else, but that's what they're sure. supposed to be. Like, that's what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be the mouth of the, the mouthpiece of the American cattlemen in Washington, D.C. They don't do it. It's like, why do we see ads encouraging people to eat more beef in beef industry trade magazines? It's like, do they are they just running that so to show us they're actually doing something? Like, no. Like, put that shit in better housekeeping. Put it in Time magazine. Like, that's where your ads need to be. Don't be advertising beef to beef producers in beef magazine that's silly well I, and, and i absolutely agree with you and I, I will just say that maybe they feel like those advertising dollars are helping to support that publication so it can get out to to beef producers they're not really doing it to make beef producers eat more beef because they already know we probably eat a lot of beef i i, I can see that i can see that but there might be other ways to accomplish those goals rather than running, you know, a full two page color glossy ad <laughs> with the, with the uh, beef recipe of the month or whatever they have in there. So, yeah, I mean, the, the checkoff has done some good things. I'm not going to say that it hasn't, 
Not going to say that at all. Just going to say maybe it's time to really take a good hard look at where those checkoff dollars are going and who's spending them and who's controlling how they're being spent. Okay, maybe we ought to take a look at that program because there's not a whole lot of oversight. I agree. I absolutely agree. All right. So I'm told you don't understand chili and cinnamon rolls. <laughs> um, that's not something that's really, uh, that's not a combination that's I was at all familiar with uh, until I saw it on social media. But um, it's not, we're just getting to chili season here. So I, I am for sure going to try some some chili and cinnamon rolls this fall. It never occurred to me that that was a strange thing because I've grown up with chili and cinnamon rolls. Like it was, it was a, it's a school lunchroom staple in, I've heard, in I've heard. County North school systems. And I, I've always, I've always kind of had some weird stuff with food. Like sometimes I don't like stuff to mix and, you know, this can't touch that, whatever. And I, I, there were people that would eat, they, they put the cinnamon roll in the bottom of the bowl and put the chili on top. And there are people that would put the chili in the bowl and put the cinnamon roll on top. And then there are people that would have them separately and eat the cinnamon roll with a fork and dip it in the chili. I thought it was weird. I always thought it was weird as shit. Put the cinnamon roll over here, put the chili over here. I will eat the chili. Then I'll eat the cinnamon roll for dessert. That's what always made sense to me. Mixing the two didn't, it just didn't compute. Right. So I grew up with chili and cinnamon rolls along with some other interesting food here, you know, in Kansas, like, uh, kolaches, we call them pigs in a blanket. It's a hot dog wrapped in, you know, it's a hot dog wrapped in dough and you bake it. Like there's nothing special about that. Pig in a blanket, kolache, whatever. But like the whole chili and cinnamon roll thing, that gets me because I, I just I never understood it either. Well, when I, when I first heard it, it was like I, I didn't understand if you know you put the cinnamon rolls down and pour the chili on top, like biscuits and gravy, or or, or just how that would work. I've learned so much. I've learned so much over. You know, social media is great for connecting these different different regions of the U.S. with our different uh, food choices, I guess. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I don't know. There's, I'm sure there's weird, weird things that people eat in other parts of the world. I just don't watch it. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about your hay and winter feed and your grazing. So how many how much hay are you planning on feeding this year? Uh, not about 90 days worth. I'm thinking that's my goal. Okay. You like, so you're making hay for the neighbor, whatever, what extra you, and you're selling the hay that you're not needing. Is that what you're end up doing? Yeah. Uh, mostly into, uh, like for people who own horses, there, there's a lot of folks here that have moved, um, moved out of the city into, that they'll call them a farmer or ranch. It's about 10 acres. You know, they move out here, they have 10 acres, they have three or four horses and then they get some goats and, you know, they have their, it's not a business. So we'll say it's a hobby. Um, and you know, they, they just need hay to feed their animal, feed their animals through the winter. So, 
and the summer usually because they don't have enough grass to even support them grazing in the summer. So you get pretty good prices from the horse people. I do. I do probably a lot better than you'd get from a cow guy. Yeah. Usually about double. People love their horses, don't they? They do. They do. And the quality has to be there, but, uh, you know, a lot, I'm sure if you've made any hay, you know, like not every bale is a good bale that you make. So it's kind of, and, and I could obviously sell the the lower quality bales as cow hay to somebody, but it's like, I could just feed them myself to my cows. I have, it just occurred to me, I've never run a baler. I've never run, I've never pulled a rake behind a tractor and I've never run a baler, but I've stacked and loaded out bales out of fields. So, but I don't know. I guess I just literally know nothing about baling hay. I can move it. I can feed it. But about baling it, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know anything. Uh, well, I, I know a little something about it, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what side of the argument you want to be on. But, you know, we don't, uh, we don't spray any hay fields here personally, um, so we do fertilize, lime, amend, you know, replant if needed, but we don't really spray. Uh, and also the, the weather here, you know, we stay pretty hot and humid in the summer, you know, and some afternoon thunderstorms come out of nowhere sometimes. So, you know, sometimes the hay just, it, it's not a premium product, not every bale you make. I remember those, I remember those summers, hot and humid, like 85 degrees and 92 and 95% humidity. It's just like walking outside into a cloud. Lovely. Work. Yes. Yes. Sweat, sweat through your shirt five minutes after being outside. Yeah. yeah that, that's pretty much summer here. But Hey man, we got to take a quick break because I got to okay. go get rid of some coffee. We'll be, I'll be right back. Uh, got it. So how did you make it out of the Marine Corps without a coffee habit? Uh, I do have a coffee habit, but I, I'd limit myself to like two cups in the morning because if I just can't drink it all day. If it was there, I would probably drink it all day. It, I, I just, almost have to force myself to drink water anymore because the coffee is just so good. I, I, I understand. And like nothing's better than, than coffee at my house, you know, and it's like I just can't sit in here all day and drink coffee. I have to wait till I'm like 80 and retired, semi-retired maybe before I can just drink coffee all day. Well, I'm not saying I could sit around the house all day to drink coffee. It's like, it's just, it's kind of a necessary <laughs> fluid to keep me going. Yeah, I actually, uh, when was this? Like 2013, maybe 2010. I like, I cut out all soda and, you know, I moved to like coffee and like flavored water is pretty much all I drink these days. I've over the last couple of years, I've pretty much dropped soda out completely. I started drinking diet Pepsi when I was a kid. I'm not even sure why. So I've almost always drank diet soda my whole life. And probably five, six years ago, you know, started learning kind of how horrible, you know, the artificial sweeteners they'd use in soda were like, okay. And then the colorings and the brown, I'm like, oh, okay, corn syrup. Yeah, we'll just, we just don't need to have that anymore. I went to try uh, more coffee and more water. 
but every once in a while and, and my tastes have really shifted like i used to not be able to stand like regular regular pop my wife likes to drink regular coke so over the last couple of years like a couple sips a day if i even have any um uh, but i've just i've changed and now it's i really like coke the stuff that comes in the red bottle, not the white crap. <laughs> yeah. Understood. I was a Mountain Dew drinker, and then it was just like, I don't know. I got I got off of it. It was crazy. So, and, and didn't get to coffee because I was working on the Navy base with a bunch of former sailors, and the coffee was just terrible. You, you know how Navy coffee is, and it's just like, I can't drink this crap. Well, I mean, you're a Marine, so your your tender little guts probably couldn't handle a real cup of coffee. Yeah, absolutely. That was the case. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious, what's what's the hardest lesson that you've had to learn? Like, what did you think you knew and what was a big correction over the last few years? Uh, I think it's really just a, a willingness to recognize when things aren't going well and uh, coming up with what you what needs to change and then having having the courage to make that change. You know, I, I think a lot of times people get stuck in in their paradigms and they're not willing to to change and they're not willing to, to go in a new direction, even if they know they need to. You know, even if, or maybe they know things aren't going well and they, you know, but they don't know what change to make. And I think it's, it's getting out there, you know, learning from other people, uh, seeing some different perspectives and be, being willing to make that change. Okay. What, um, what are some resources or some ways that I, I don't even know what I'm trying to ask, but how, like, what, what kind of drove you that way or what things, what has helped you see what other people are doing, I guess? Honestly, social media, which is, is, you know, I, I know people poo poo all over social media all, all the time, but, you know, I think you can use it to, to see people who are in similar circumstances, but maybe, you know, in a different region or doing things differently. And, and you can learn from that if, if you're open to it, you know? Okay. So uh, I also, uh, I took some classes uh, locally, you know, done some pasture walks, seen other producers, uh, network with producers locally that I can, you know, reach out to and ask questions or, or just, you know, have somebody to talk to or, or, or whatever you need. Okay. How do you find out about those events in your area? Uh, Facebook, honestly. Um, but I, uh, so we have like Virginia Forge and Grassland Council that's uh, out promoting, you know, growing better grass, growing better forage. They, they host a fair amount of events here locally. Um what you're saying is there isn't a place where you can go and look and like an events calendar or anything. I don't think so. Not that I've found. Okay. I, it, I haven't done a lot of looking and I, 
doesn't seem like there is like a unified soil health calendar or soil health events database. Um, my friend Jennifer Similink at Kansas Soil Health Alliance is trying to run one. KSSoilHealth.org slash events, I think, is is where to go. And anybody can submit an event anywhere in the country. And they're like, you know, there's stuff in Ohio, there's stuff in Washington State, there's stuff in California listed listed on there. And it, it's it's a pretty good resource. And maybe more people need to use it. And maybe there's an opportunity out there for some smart young millennial software developer that uh, you know can write some sort of a smart machine learning algorithm to scrape the internet for all soil health events and put them on a calendar. Maybe there's an opportunity there. I, I don't. I don't know any smart people. I'm joking. I'm, I know a ton of smart people, but uh, yeah, that that would be interesting uh, to see. You know, a lot, a lot of the things I find are you know, are more regional and and not my region, which is understandable. I mean, we're not really in cattle country here. So, I mean, everybody should care about soil health, but. Soil health is everyone's problem, but not everybody likes cows. Correct. So now, now I'm thinking about how do we, how do we promote that message even more? And I'm not sure. I'll just have to have to work on that one. How far are you from Joel Salatin's place? A couple hours, probably. Have you been there? I have not. Any reason why? I just don't feel like going? I, I have strong opinions about this, which I think might run counter to a lot of people's opinions. Um, I like I think strong he, opinions. Let's argue about it. I, he he's doing wonderful things. I, I, I do believe that. Um, and I think if I had a lot of, uh, if I had more of a marketing mindset and I, I had written a bunch of books and I had marketed myself in that way, and then I could turn around and use those marketing skills to get a lot of free or cheap labor to do a lot of those things. I, I think he's got a great system. Okay. He's also been doing it, I don't know, 20, 30 years. A absolutely. You know, and it does take time. And I, marketing is where a lot of us really struggle. It's where I really struggle. Like marketing myself, marketing this podcast, trying to be a self-promoter. Like I'm not that great at it. And to be fair, there's there's been quite a bit of criticism like pointed towards uh, Polyface Farms about their use of, you know, quote, unpaid labor. Well, I can understand that point. There's also the point that every education you get, you pay for somehow, right? You do. Everything that I know that's rolling around in, in my brain case, somehow I've paid for it, whether it's going and sitting through that the school that shall not be named, holistic management, going to Noble's Essentials or Regenerative Ranching or just watching the grass, going out grazing at ultra high density, measuring before, measuring after, seeing what they left. All that's knowledge and all that's knowledge that's valuable in your head and totally forgot the whole freaking point. Um, but it's all, it, it's all knowledge 
and it's all acquired at cost. And I didn't get to where I'm at overnight. I didn't learn these things overnight. Like the things I know have been learned over a lifetime, the, the skills I've been building over a lifetime. And let's say that there's 25 year old college graduate with useless degree that says, I don't want to do this. I have no background in agriculture and I want to go somewhere and learn from the best. So they'll go intern at Polyface Farms and they get a look at multi-species grazing at high densities, complementary biology and silvopasture and, you know, a lot of really great things. And you and I both know that like 80% of our day-to-day work can be done by a trained monkey. Right. It's that 20% that screws up. Like that's where we make our dollars is like that one screw up you're going to have in the week, knowing how to fix it without costing you a whole bunch of money. Like that's, that's the lifetime of knowledge. Kind of like a story of, uh, you know, there's this big ocean ship, right? And they were having a problem with the engine. They, nobody on board could figure it out. Right. So they hire this consultant that's been retired for, you know, 10 years. And the consultant says it's $50,000. And the company says, whatever, we got to have our engine working. So the guy goes to the boat. He looks around on it, you know, puts his ear up to it. And he walks over and he takes out a hammer and he hits the engine. And he packs up his tools and he leaves. And they say, that's it. We paid $50,000 for you to come hit it one time with a hammer. And he says, no, you paid $10 for me to hit it with a hammer. You paid $4,990 for me to know where to hit it. And I, I, I agree with that analogy. And just to circle back to that, that person who's wants to get into agriculture and they have gone and and interned at at Polyface or, or or another farm to gain that knowledge. You know, my question simply is: Can they take that system and implement it somewhere else? And I don't think they can unless they can get the cheap labor to do it. And I don't think you can get that cheap labor unless you have the, you know, the reach that Joel has. Okay. And, and there's a good point there. Um, there's a good point there about, you know, his reach and, and, and cheap labor. I think what, where a lot of people get fouled up with Salatin is, is they go there and they see everything that he's doing and they want to take it to like Arizona and they wonder why it doesn't work or to New Hampshire and wonder why it doesn't work. And I think they've missed the message. They've missed the point of the things that, that Joel's doing work in the Shenandoah Valley. They might not work where you're at on the other side of the mountains or, you know, on the other side of the Hills or whatever y'all call them there. Um, and they definitely wouldn't work out here in the plains. Do the concepts work appropriately applied to the context? Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah. And I would agree with you on that. I feel though that most people miss that point and they miss that different context, you know, and they don't apply them. They, they look at it as, as a prescription, 
you know, they're looking, I, for, I can, they're looking for a proscriptive system that when A doesn't work, we can take action C. When B doesn't work, we take actions D, E, and F. They're looking for a prescriptive system, and then and that's fine. But I prescriptive systems don't work in a natural system. I, I agree. And I, I think a lot of people, for some reason, a lot of people lack the critical thinking skills to solve problems for themselves. Where, where does that leave? Like, where does that leave your brain? Because I think most children up to the age of four or five, they're asking critical thinking questions about how the world works. And then suddenly somewhere between when they enter the public school system and when they exit the public school system, we seem to lose that ability to think critically and ask, ask important questions about how the world really works. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, for a lot of people, public school is subsidized daycare for their children. And, you know, the public school system in a lot of ways is designed to produce, you know, people working in an office um, and, you know, go, graduate high school, go to college, go out and get your office job. It doesn't matter if you're happy or not, but, you know, you'll make some money, you know, may probably be able to support the family. And, you know, we just keep cranking out drones to keep doing the work. The root of the public school system was you know, around a hundred years ago in the post-industrial revolution era, reconstruction era, factory workers or factory owners, factory bosses couldn't find people that were trained that would come stand on the assembly line, do what they're told and not ask questions for eight hours a day and then go home. And similarly, that's what like, you know, that's what, that's what they want at Microsoft. You show up, you do your job, do what you're told. Don't ask a bunch of stupid questions and we'll pay you to do that. Then you can go home. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, but then you, you go on to be uh, at one point I managed like 50 or 60 people. And it's like you, you go on into managed managers. You know, it, if you go on into something past just that drone working day, it's like you need those critical thinking skills. But like you haven't. Your your schooling and job experience hasn't uh, taught you those. You, you You haven't learned that. You haven't learned to problem solve. I think that holds a lot of people back. You know, I'm driving around this year. I'm going, why is there so much Indian grass this year? Why is there so much big blue stem this year? And that's, that sounds like a simple question. Okay. What's the answer? Well, I don't know. Why do we have, because, because it was dry and hot. And then we had rain in June, July and August and it was hot. I, is that why the grass is almost a foot taller than it normally is? I don't know. Certainly makes sense, but that's an observation I'm going to put in the book. So back to the back to the prescriptive system. That's what that's what the farmers all wanted, right? Instead of you know what farming was 100 150 years ago, 
whereas you had to know how to rotate your crops to manage your soil fertility and manage, you know, the animals bringing the fertility back or hauling the manure out of the barn. Now it's a prescriptive system. We take away all the variables. We take away everything. We take away all the biology and start back from zero. We're going to start with a clear field, you know, nice, perfect seed bed. Put the seed in it. We'll make sure we put all the nutrients in there that the seed needs. That's great. The prescriptive system likes to have cheap, dumb labor. Sure. Because it's like, okay, if the plant's not doing this, put this on it. If it's doing this, do this. And I think ranching can be prescriptive, but on a much, much larger scale, like on a 20 or 30 year landscape scale like i know i need to burn pastures i've wanted to do it now for three years i haven't had the rain and i haven't had the fuel this year with the rain that we had in the growing season and the little rain that we had coming into the growing season i am so far understocked right now i don't it's not even funny like if this place was any flatter, people would be driving in every day asking if they cut it for hay. <laughs> it's like the, the little blue stem and the side oats grass. I've never seen it that I've never seen it this thick. And it's no kidding. 30 to 36 inches tall. Like my little blue stem is three feet tall. That's pretty wild. The big blue is, it's over my head. Like it's seven, eight feet tall in places even the Indian grass is, is way up there, six, seven feet tall. Just absolutely nuts. But you, you know, I mean, that's an advantage you guys, you have as a custom grazer. You could have gotten more customers to get more cattle into you if you, if you cared to. Yes and no. Um, you know, they, they take time to get a hold of, right? They take time to sure. get a hold of and, and move around. And it was a thought. I mean, I, I didn't even start thinking that I might be understocked until late, late June or late June, early July. Like it, right. didn't even, it didn't even occur to me, Patrick, because we'd been so dry for the two years previous to that. Like it was a middle, normally I bring in, I'll bring in all the custom stock right around the first of May. Okay. Cause that's almost every year we've got grass by the 15th of May, like, I've never seen it not green up by the 15th of May until this year. I was still grazing brown grass right up to the 1st of June. Like I had nothing green all the way to June. It was that dry. So when I started making, I, I'd prefer to make my stocking decision in like January or February. Of, right. Of how I'm going to stock the ranch. Because that gives a client time to, to put together the herd go do what he has to do and not be, you know, pressed at the last minute and try to put everything together, you know, in, in 60 days. So I worked with my clients this year. We just kept kicking and kicking a can down the road. Okay. Just kept kicking it down the road. And we got down into like March and I said, we got to pull numbers back a lot. April comes like, this is the number. And it was, it was small. Um, I had, I had one group come in about the middle of May on the West side and we've gone ahead and we've extended days on that, on that herd. 
my other herd, we kept kicking a can, kept kicking a can. I didn't even bring in cattle till the end of May to commingle with my herd. And we brought in, I brought in maybe two thirds of what I could have brought in. But then again, you know, you're coming in two years of drought. Sure. Not, you don't know what to expect. Yeah. I'm not going to get excited about one rain. I'm not going to get excited about a couple of rains. Even we got down in the middle of June, you know, the numbers said that we're really far behind. So even in hindsight, looking back, I don't think that there was a point where I would have, even with what I know now about how good the year was going to be, I can't even go all the way back to the first of the year and tell you that there was a point where, you know, if I knew how the year was going to shake out, that I would have had more cows just because I, I can have four times the stock that I've got. Right. The well, I mean, but at the end of May, when they showed up, I'm thinking I've got, I ordered twice as many as I need. And I might be lucky to pull 45 or 60 days out of this. I mean, that's where I was at the, that's where I was at the end of May. Like I was thinking I might have a 45 to 60 day grazing season and then I would be done. Right. Well, and, and that's what I'm, uh, this goes right back to my point of, of, you know, fixing your paradigm. And I'm not saying you have the wrong paradigm because I, I think you made the right decision uh, on your context. And obviously I don't know all of your operation, but it's like, well, you know, you just talk to your, to your friend Wally Olson. He says the cattle market's still going up. You know, we can go down to the sale barn. We can get four or five pot loads of wean cattle and we can put them out there and do some fall and winter grazing and, and sell them and make a bunch of money. Maybe, maybe not, you know, who knows, but there's always options out there or you can burn it. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what, what works in your context best, but. Well, if I was just in the cattle business, yeah, I might go. I might go get excited to go buy a bunch, you know, a couple pot loads and graze them hard for the next 90 days until it starts right. getting cold and then get rid of them. That's probably, you know, that would probably be a money-making deal. A, I don't want to work that hard. B, I don't like that much <laughs> risk. And C, I'd rather save the fuel to burn the ranch because that's going to pay off more down the line. And I'll explain that in a minute. So I have a carbon contract with Grassroots Carbon on all my acres. So you're thinking, why do you want to burn that? Burn up all your grass. Well, any carbon loss to the atmosphere is regained less than a hundred days later by the soil. And if we, if we go on the assumption that if we have taller plants above ground, they're going to have more root mass below ground. So the thinking is the way that I've been grazing the last two years through the drought, having extra, extra long rest periods, especially when we get down and the grasses in what I call phase three, which it's already put up stem and seed head and it's working on its root reserve. By making sure that we have good root reserves over the last two years is why I have good grass this year. Cause I can go look at other ranches that, you know, been grazed hard for two years, three years or, or since the wildfire in 2016. And they look like a pool table. I'm like, oh yeah, that buffalo grass is great. I'm like, yeah, that buffalo grass is great at about four or five hundred pounds an acre. Like, you want to talk about something? Let's go look at my big blue. Let's go look at my Indian grass. This is six, seven thousand pounds an acre production. Okay. You know, you could tell me that cows, your cows don't gain on that big red grass. Well, I don't care. 
because I can run like four times the head that you can because I actually have something for them to eat. Anyway, got a hell of a good fuel load. And so I had a wildfire in, in 2016 come through the ranch, burned the whole ranch up, burned out a lot of canyons that I'd never been able to get a prescribed fire down, into. What I've really been noticing the last two years is I'm getting a lot of little baby cedar trees coming back. And when they're under four feet tall, they're real easy to kill a fire, especially the fuel load I've got uh, that, I've, that I've built up and maintained. So um, I actually met with one of my neighbors uh, be almost two weeks ago now. I was just sitting at the shop and he calls me. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just sitting here at the shop. It's like, well, I'm kind of by your north end, just driving through your cows. I want to light this on fire. What do you think? I'm like, hold that thought. I'll be right there. <laughs> So I jumped on the side-by-side and I ran up and I met with this uh, gentleman. He's actually one of our county commissioners. Neighbor lives like four miles down the road, manages the property that's on the other side of my driveway. Okay. Hmm. We went to school together. We've met. So he's got, um, I don't know, he's got like 2,200 acres that are leased. And so there, there, let me paint the picture for you. So there's this area of land that's about, it's just under 30,000 acres. We've got a river on the north side. We've got a highway on the south side. And we've got a blacktop road on the west and a really good dirt road on the east. Okay. It's like 27 or 30,000 acres. That might not even be right. I'm going off memory here. But on the north end of it, up by the river, it's almost all farmed. And across five miles on that north end, there's only about 300 yards that we have to worry about. So we go up, we tie those 300 yards in up by the river, and we can just run torches down those two roads on both sides and then run a torch down the highway, and we could burn 30,000 acres before lunch. So that, that's what we're going to try to pull off. I haven't even really talked about it to, any, to anybody in the community yet. I'm in. I've got 2,500 acres up there. My neighbor to the north, he's in. He's got about 3,000. Fell on my east side. That's 740. But like he can't burn his place without me burning mine and without the other neighbor on the east side burning theirs. They want to burn. Like it's just we're down to my cousins. And they're like, they've got 24, 2,500 acres kind of in the northeast part of this. And they're like, we don't want to burn. Like, we're going to burn it. The question is <laughs> how much of it are we going to burn? Like we can leave some grass along the Lake city road for you. Maybe if we're one of those fields, but we're going to put a bunch of fire on the ground this next year. I hope, I hope. And you're probably like thinking it sounds like a lot of work. It is going to be spread out over almost 10 miles. Going to need probably close to a hundred people to pull this off but I'd rather do one big one of like 30,000 acres than try to do two or three small ones. Like, and how long is it going to take? It'll take as long as it takes to burn 40 acres. It's going to take all damn day. Sure. Sure. And and in your context, I mean, what's the advantage of burning it besides removing the, the fuel? So. And the cedar trees. I, the prairies, the great plains evolved with fire. I mean, the, the great plains grasses, they evolved with fire and the fire will like 
a dormant season fire, say I could come in and like the third week of March to the second week of April. Okay. That's like right towards the tail end of winter. Assuming we haven't had a wildfire come through and burn up the world again, that's going to be kind of, it's a good time to burn. Um, ideally I would have done it 30 to 45 days ago. Some of it like do it late growing season, kind of past the window for doing a lot of growing season burns. We're into the dormant season burn window and you got to wait to the end of the season to do that. So looking at third week of March, first week of April. And yeah, we're going to kill some cedar trees. Are we going to, am I going to get any that the fire missed? Probably not going to get a lot of babies. And that's, you know, that's the next generation of cedar trees. So I want to go ahead and get rid of those while they're still very, very vulnerable and easy to get rid of. It also has the effect of stimulating grass production. So I said that, you know, people are like, oh, you're releasing all the carbon in the atmosphere. I'm going to catch that and store that in my roots within 100 days. And the grass gets a production boost in the first year. But what really gets the boost is the root mass for the next two years, building up extra root mass and, and more root reserves. And that's important because that's where the carbon is stored. So by having this carbon storage contract and burning roughly in the middle of it, that should give me a big storage boost when they come back and measure me for the true up payment for grassroots in a couple of years. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Does it do, uh, does it help germinate seeds that are in the seed bank? I'm going to say yes. And I have absolutely no scientific data to prove that up. And I'm not a botanist. Okay. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that the seeds, some of the seeds like, uh, side oats, grama seeds, like I've seen, uh, I've seen them in a lab where they do, you know, hot, cold cycles with the seed. And the seed expands and contracts and it, that helps it work its way down into the soil. I think Indian grass seeds kind of do the same thing. So there's, there's definitely something with the fire that helps plants germinate and helps rejuvenate the seed bank. I just before we jumped on to do this, um, an article came across my feed. I think it was the research was out of Wisconsin or Minnesota or somewhere. Okay. And it was on native plant response to fire. And, the, and these things I'm telling you, some of it came out of this, some of it came out of this article that I just read a couple hours ago. And most of them are coming out of my head from a lifetime of doing it. So I'm 45. I was eight years old the first time my dad put a drip torch in my hand. Sure. I, I, I have a little experience with fire, <laughs> just a little bit. More of it watching it burn. And, and watching it behave than actual like really getting down to study the after effects, which is that's what I've been a lot into. Well, since 2016 is after effects of a big fire and, and how to manage after fires. Um, but yeah, store carbon, reset the grass. There's, there's places, you know, I'm, I'm not going to claim to be the world's master grazer. I'm not going to claim to be a grazing guru doing the best I can with what I got. And I think that's all, that's all any of us are doing. I've got paddocks that are too big. I've got places where I don't have enough water systems and 
I've got to have big paddocks. It's just the fact of life right now. I've got terrain challenges. There are places in some of these paddocks where cattle don't go, where I can't even, where I basically couldn't even really force them to go unless I put a string around them and kept them there. So that's also what fire does is it gets into those corners, resets that plant community. And a lot of times we'll change, we'll totally change up your grazing distribution pattern just by running a fire through one paddock. You know, they might be really mashing the areas around the pond this year. We're going to burn it. And next year they'll be up in the corner eating stuff. That's, that's really good and not down by the pond hammering it. So there's all kinds of different reasons to burn. Do you guys, does, from what I remember of Virginia, there's zero fire culture. Zero. Zero. You you would, the only uh, prescribed burns they do here is like in planted pine trees type situations where they'll go in and burn out the underbrush. Like for a timber harvesting type operation? Yes. That makes sense. That makes sense. But we're, you know, we're also all, introduced grasses it's basically fest all fescue for the most part i mean there's some orchard grass and some other grasses here but is there anything like what would native pasture look like or is there anything that would be what would be called native anywhere close to you go look at or is it pretty much all been quote improved it's all been improved. Um, there are some folks that are are going, you know, back to native warm season grasses, uh, you know, big blue stem, Indian grass, switch grass, eastern gamer grass. And I actually went and took like a half day class with a guy from the, uh, and I can't remember his name. He's from the University of Tennessee, wrote a book about reestablishing native warm season grasses here. And it's like step one is either full tillage or like a three spray burn down to try to kill off all the fescue. And I, I, I'm personally not interested in doing either one of those things. So, you know, they'll either come back with better grazing management or they, they won't come back is, is kind of where I'm at. Okay. I mean, the question, the question would be is if the seeds are in your seed bank, that would be my question. Well, I have seen some eastern gamma grass. Um, it was actually in a hay field, but yeah. So so I think there are some seeds still in the seed bank. See, I've seen eastern gamma grass just because my dad grows some behind his house. I, I've never been able, don't have any of it in the pasture. I wish I did. But Indian grass, big blue stem, we got that covered. So maybe the thing is, and here would be a suggestion is to get some of that, get some native grass seed. And I understand it's expensive as hell, no matter where you are, get a little bit of it and try to see if you can't get the cows to stomp it in instead of trying sure. to plant it or plow it up, which is expensive diesel fuel. Let the cows do the work. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I was actually, um, there's, there's a gentleman that I know, I met him when he was in high school and he started working behind the parts counter at the parts store. And now he's our County EMS director. Uh, his name's Jeremy Thompson. I don't think he listens to the podcast. He's a really cool guy here in the community. 
coolest thing that he's doing is uh, his house is in town. It's not on the main street, but it's kind of on one of the main drags through town. And it's kind of up on a hill. Everybody knows where it's at. He's got a pollinator yard. Like oh, wow. Let a couple of big sunflowers and, you know, some big weeds grow up in his yard and it's kind of got a steep slope. And, um, I said something to him a couple months ago. I was like, Hey JD, I just want to let you know, you know, I appreciate what you're doing with your yard for the pollinator habitat. I think it looks really cool. And he said something about, yeah, I really want to get some native grass established. Like, okay, let me help you out. So this morning, actually I went out. Just this morning, I actually went out and hand collected about a half a gallon uh, plastic baggie worth of Indian grass seed. Just went to a spot, start pulling them like, oh, this stuff's ready to pull. Just start pulling handfuls, stuff them in a bag. So I'm going to take all this grass seed in and just give it to them. I've got, I mean, there's a little bit of big blue in there. There's some switch grass. There's some side oats, but it's primarily Indian grass because Indian grass is my favorite grass. If nobody knew that. Um, so I'm just going to take it take it in and it's by the time I get done, it'll be in a pretty good sized box. Um, just going to take it in and say, here you go. Just throw it in the yard. My suggestion to him is just going to be, just put it in the yard and water it in. And when it's cold this winter, try to water it on a warm day and let it water in, let those seeds work into the profile. And I also said, don't be surprised if you don't see anything for a year or two, maybe three, because it takes those seeds time to get down to the right depth and find the right environmental conditions and get happy in a germinate. And so there was part of the ranch that dad put back to grass, um, in the mid eighties when he first came out here and got control over the ranch out of the family. And the place that I'm talking about, I call them farm fields. So I got kind of split in half, got North and I got a South and the soil's not that great because it was probably farmed from the homesteading days all the way up sure. through the 30s and you know it's a hilltop and it was some of the last farm ground on the ranch and i could look downhill like through the washes and down on the neighbor and go like there's where all my topsoil went because i know that i mean it's just growing huge huge amounts of grass down the waterway i'm like there's all my topsoil um but anyway he planted it back to grass and i remember 15 years ago like it was pretty poor down there like it was poor Grazing at high density, long rest rotations, that's helped. What he thinks really helped was actually putting in some Forbes seeds in the late 90s. He said that when he did that, that's when he started seeing the taller grasses come in. And it's only been in the last two years that I've really grown a lot of grass down there. And this year, it's just it's all big blue and Indian grass on the whole, like, the whole west east half both those pastures it's awesome so i think it just takes time i think it takes time for the native seed bank to express itself and you have to and you have to keep maintaining that seed bank and let it regenerate every once in a while would be my point well, I, no i and i agree i i think uh you know for a lot of people it's it's they don't want to take the time or they don't feel like they have the time you know they have production goals and, or, or whatever the case may be. And it's, you know, the land comes second to, to other goals. And I think, you know, taking a longer term view of, of land management and, and land improvement, you know, you can meet those production goals and improve your land. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, I'm, I'm still back to thinking about prescriptive systems. And the reason that we want a prescriptive system is so we can have an interchangeable labor unit that doesn't need to be highly educated and creative and a problem solver. I agree. I absolutely agree. Maybe we'll just leave. We'll just leave it at that. Um, we do have to start moving out of here. So I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you all of the power. You're now the king of agriculture. Okay. What changes are you going to make on day one? As the king of agriculture? Um, uh, make grazing great again. Okay. Like, can we get, can we get cattle out of, uh, out of feedlots and out of barns and out of pens and, and back on the land and grazing? Okay. I like it. Um, can we pull out some, let's pull out some subsidies. Let's, you know, people say they farm and, and they're feeding the world. And, you know, I don't, I don't see a lot of, uh, yellow dent corn and, and field soybeans in the grocery store, you know? It, are, are they feeding the world with that? No, I don't think they are. And, and I don't think feeding the world is a goal. Uh, it's not a goal I have, you know, uh, it's, it's feed your community or, or feed your family. You know, you got to stay profitable to, uh, to stay in business. So you have to feed your bank account on occasion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, just the mentality of, of feeding the world with, with corn and soybeans, you know, it, I think that needs to change. So you'd you'd want people to get out. You'd want cattle to get out of feedlots and graze more. I'm assuming you'd probably want an analog for for hogs and for chickens. Sure. Um, you'd take a look at the subsidy system, which I think everybody listening to this podcast would agree that the subsidy system needs to be looked at. And at, as we're recording this, I think the I think the farm bill has to pass this week. Is that correct? I believe so. So by the time that everybody else gets to hear this, the government's either going to be shut down or we'll have a new farm bill and we'll all be trying to figure out what's in it. So we'll... yeah, I, I think the new farm bill is going to be real interesting. We're just going to have to wait till they pass it to see what's in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that seems to be the case on a lot of these bills. We'll read it after it's done. Yep. Yep. Well, what's some reading uh, that people could do after this is done. Where can they find you out on social media? Uh, pretty much just TikTok, which I, I'm going to say this for all your listeners, and I, I'll say this to you. Do not get on TikTok. It, it's a, a giant time waster. It's not worth it. You can learn a lot, but it's not worth it. I mean, you could say that about every social media platform, Patrick. Like, they're all just a giant waste of time. They are. They are. I. They're all a waste of time. I probably have more fun arguing with people on Twitter than anywhere else. It's, it's, it's X like, now. It's X. You what, can't say Twitter anymore. Elon will come down and get you. Bring it. <laughs> if I can do something, I'll get missed <laughs> by Elon Musk. I'm probably going to, I'll try. Uh, it's, it's still Twitter. I, I Whatever. <laughs> like, I, x oh i sent you an x that doesn't 
send me an ex what send me an ex-girlfriend send me an, <laughs> an I, I don't want that like you can tweet me that one's fine like oh i was on x.com the other day like triple x no <laughs> i he can call it whatever he wants it's still twitter in my book it's still twitter to me too but i'm, I'm not on there I, I like going on Twitter to pick fights. And I'll agree, TikTok is 98% a huge time waster. But every once in a while, you'll stumble on somebody that's got something really interesting to say, and you'll learn something you didn't even think you wanted to know. I, I agree, and that and that is why I'm still on there. And it's it's been, uh, for me, it's been great to connect with with other, uh, other ranchers, farmers, cattlemen, other producers. Well, that's how I met you. I probably wouldn't have met you otherwise. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now now I got to be on my first podcast, so. Well, we'll do another one. Maybe I'll get, uh, I'm trying to plan this big, cool road trip for next year. We've got some more details coming out later, but if I do make it to Virginia and we do an in-person podcast, will you put on your top hat and tails? Absolutely. And can we do it in the Ab- pasture? Of course. I mean, my guardian dogs will just like probably lick you to death. But yeah, we can we can do it in the sheep pasture. That's what they do. I mean, that's what guardian dogs do. <laughs> we, you know, I'm only eight hours from from North Georgia. There's probably a guy down there you'd want to do an in person podcast with too. So, oh yeah, yeah. I I don't know what the big road trip next year is going to look like, but uh, or if it's even going to happen if I can pull the funding together. That's something else entirely. But uh, yeah, I want to get out on the road and do on location stuff. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Pasture podcast series from the there sheep paddock or from the cow paddock. That's that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. Well, maybe we can get a smell-o-vision technology by then so all the listeners will be able to get the full effect. Of the sheep pasture? Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll put that on the list. Smell-o-vision. All right, what do you want to end with? Uh, nothing. I, I I really enjoyed it. I hope everybody has a great day. Okay, I enjoyed talking to. I enjoyed visiting with you, and um, I guess everybody else have a great week. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q and A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.